You're listening to ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to ADHD Across the Lifespan, produced in cooperation with APSART, the American Professional Society of ADHD and Related Disorders, and sponsored by Concerta, a product of McNeil Pediatrics, division of Ortho McNeil Janssen Pharmaceuticals, Incorporated. Your host is Clinical Assistant Professor and Director of the Wellness Team for NYU Graduate Medical Education, Dr. Vatsal Thacker. Are non-stimulants an effective alternative to stimulants for treating ADHD patients, or are non-stimulants best used as a complementary treatment to other medications? Joining us to discuss non-stimulants in ADHD patients is Dr. Richard Rubin, Clinical Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Vermont School of Medicine and Adjunct Associate Professor at Dartmouth Medical College. Dr. Rubin is also Director of the Vermont Clinical Study Center in Burlington, Vermont. Welcome, Dr. Rubin. Thank you very much. How do you do? Stimulants were obviously the first medications used to treat ADHD beginning many decades ago. What are the reasons for considering a non-stimulant treatment? Well, even though we have a great deal of both research and clinical experience ever since approximately the 1940s with several types of stimulant medicines, we've learned that there are certain characteristics of the very wide variety of patients, both kids and adults, who get help or do better with a non-stimulant. And the non-stimulants are really a group of various medicines as a way of just describing options to the very specific effects of stimulants. Let's cover which groups of medications we're talking about when we say non-stimulants. Obviously, Stratera, etamoxetine, which is FDA-approved for adults with ADHD, is on the list. What other classes of medications would you lump in with non-stimulants? Well, first of all, to define the stimulants, we have the medicines based on methylphenidate, which is the active ingredient in a half a dozen of the brand names, the old Ritalin, Ritalin long-acting, Concerta, Detrana, Focalin, Focalin extended release. So there's a variety that we call methylphenidates. And then secondly, there are the amphetamines, and these are Dexedrine, Adderall, Adderall extended release, Vivance are the main amphetamines used. So the non-stimulants essentially become any other medicine that does not have the characteristics of stimulating any individual who takes it, meaning faster pulse, maybe higher blood pressure, keep you awake instead of usual sleep, feel energized, and in addition to ADHD patients who get strengthening of their ADHD self-control and attention functions. So the non-stimulants would include only one that is approved, and that is atomoxetine stratera. And then there are several others that have been used from various sources of medical practice that have ADHD benefits for certain patients. A second most familiar one would be bupropion, the trade name for that is Wellbutrin, and that's been in three different forms in its evolution over the past two, 12 or 15 years. And then the third group of non-stimulants in common use 
are two blood pressure medicines, clonidine and guanfacine, that have been discovered to have some particular, in certain patients, ADHD and ADHD-related benefits because they have a similar, different mechanism, but a similar chemistry to atomoxetine. And then there are some older medicines, which these days are probably rarely used, the old tricyclic antidepressants, medicines like imipramine, desipramine, nortriptyline, and there are various reasons why they're no longer in current use. Would you include the SNRI category in this list, the serotonin norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors? Well, it so happens that because of the norepinephrine effects, and we know norepinephrine helps ADHD, there has been study in the past of venlafaxine, which has been the major SNRI. However, the results of that were somewhat equivocal. There were two or three studies of the short-acting version, I believe one of the extended-release version, and it was fairly mixed. And I must say that that was before we had atomoxetine as a specific and less complex and risky norepinephrine medicine to use compared to the old tricyclics. So current use of the SNRIs for ADHD has very little support and very little clinical practice utility. So then getting back to the original question, how would you conceptualize who would get a stimulant versus a non-stimulant in clinical practice? Well, we know there are several situations in patients that occur that stimulants are not appropriate or the best choice. First is, while 70-75% of individuals will respond to stimulants, maybe 80-85% to if two types of stimulants are used, we know that there are some people who don't respond at all with ADHD. So there are the non-responders or inadequate effectiveness. A second group are people who have side effect difficulties. We call them tolerability problems in studies. And the stimulants affect them adversely and are not tolerated adequately. A third group are people who have another mental health disorder mixed in with their ADHD, so-called comorbidities, that the stimulants may worsen. These include tic disorders, Anxiety disorders, there's a warning in the stimulant package insert, may exacerbate anxiety disorders. And those are really the two main ones, possibly some others, possibly bipolar disorder if it's not also being treated. So there's the psychiatric comorbidity risks. And then fourthly, there are physical disorder comorbidity risks. For example, an individual with high blood pressure that may not be under good control and we need to be careful about those. And then there are some other characteristics to look at, thyroid disorders, for example. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to ADHD Across the Lifespan from ReachMD Radio on XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Vatsal Thacker, and joining us to discuss non-stimulants in ADHD patients is Dr. Richard Rubin, Clinical Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Vermont School of Medicine and Adjunct Associate Professor at Dartmouth Medical College. So, Dr. Rubin, getting back to uh, reasons where one might prefer 
prescribing a non-stimulant over a stimulant. Are there any other reasons to consider a non-stimulant medication? Well, there's been a complicated matter for doctors and the public and patients to work with regarding the stimulant medicines. And that is because there is potential for abuse, misuse, street value, these do fall under controlled drug restrictions by the Drug Enforcement Administration. That means doctors can't write refills, can't do phone refills, the amount that can be prescribed is limited. So because of these, there is an extra effort for both people being compliant, adherent, keeping up with their medicine, and also for doctors to have to see patients more frequently and also make sure they get their medicines properly. Some states have extra requirements, for example, for prescribing these properly with the documentation. And also on the topic of the potential for abuse, there's definitely a distinction between people who use the stimulant medicines appropriately for ADHD treatment and then people who have a comorbidity of substance abuse and also inappropriate behavior of what I'll call misuse that are not necessarily the same. However, there are worries among the public and there are concerns at various levels, parents with kids, people wondering what college students are doing with their medicine inappropriately. That complicates the use of the stimulants and makes some patients or parents reject the stimulants for that reason. Someone who may be, let's say, in a recovery program from other substance abuse may wish to avoid any medicine that has a risk of possible abuse relapse. And then lastly, I would say there is interest in the alternative health care arena or use by the public of other non-standardized name-brand pharmaceutical approaches. And this tends to move people away from the stimulants looking for supplements and medicines that may be more broadly applied for other purposes like ADHD beyond the strictly controlled prescribed pharmaceuticals. What do you think about the efficacy between the non-stimulants versus the stimulants? I know they're somewhat heterogeneous classes, but what would you say about efficacy differences? Well, that is defined in a variety of ways. Now, you use the word efficacy, which is a very specific term that applies to structured clinical trials. And for medicines to be approved, they need to demonstrate enough statistically significant efficacy, meaning change in a core symptom of ADHD that distinguishes them from placebo. And that's the way the trials are structured. And that's also the main measure that the Food and Drug Administration looks at for approving a medicine, in addition to, of course, sufficient safety. However, when you move into the area of treating patients in regular practice, we talk in terms more of effectiveness, which is more than just a semantic distinction, but it really considers, well, what's the outcome with 
all the many factors that come into play in everyday life practice. For example, clinical trials select people who are very homogeneous with their disorder so that many comorbidities with ADHD, which are extremely common in the general population, are excluded for both scientific reasons that we're accurately measuring medicine effects for a clear one condition, and secondly, because uh, often safety reasons, such as what I mentioned earlier, some comorbidities may suffer adverse effects with the medicine. So the group of people in trials are often far more homogeneous and don't have many of the everyday life problems, medical problems, other mental health problems, social difficulties that complicate everyday life treatment. I would like to thank my guest from the University of Vermont School of Medicine, as well as Dartmouth Medical College, Dr. Richard Rubin. Dr. Rubin, thank you very much for being our guest this week on ADHD Across the Lifespan. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to ADHD Across the Lifespan on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. ADHD Across the Lifespan is produced in cooperation with APSART, the American Professional Society of ADHD and Related Disorders, and sponsored by Concerta, a product of McNeil Pediatrics, division of Ortho McNeil Janssen Pharmaceuticals Incorporated. For more information about this or any other show, please visit ReachMD.com, now featuring on-demand podcasts. It's 9 a.m., and John's ADHD is already causing problems at home. Work doesn't go much better. Once Daily Concerta, methylphenidate hydrochloride is a step in the right direction for patients like John who need ADHD symptom improvement with a proven tolerability profile. Concerta offers smooth delivery of medication throughout the day, and its compromise-resistant formulation may help discourage abuse. Abuse of methylphenidate may lead to dependence. Concerta is a Schedule II controlled substance. Concerta is already the number one ADHD medication prescribed for children and adolescents. Discover the benefits it can bring to adult patients with ADHD. Visit www.concerta360.com to find out more today and get online tools for diagnosing ADHD in adults. Concerta is indicated for the treatment of Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, ADHD. Important Safety Information Concerta should not be taken by patients with allergies to methylphenidate or other ingredients in Concerta, significant anxiety, tension, or agitation, glaucoma, Tourette's syndrome, tics, or family history of Tourette's syndrome, current or recent use of monomain oxidase inhibitors, MAOIs. Children under 6 years of age should not take Concerta. Abuse of methylphenidate may lead to dependence. Concerta should not be used in patients with known structural cardiac abnormalities, cardiomyopathy, serious heart rhythm abnormalities, coronary artery disease, other serious cardiac problems, or patients with pre-existing severe gastrointestinal narrowing. Use with caution in patients with hypertension and other cardiovascular conditions, psychosis, bipolar disorder, and history of seizures, EEG abnormalities. Stimulants may cause new psychotic or manic symptoms. Discontinuation of treatment may be appropriate. Aggressive behavior or hostility should be monitored in patients beginning ADHD treatment. Methylphenidate may produce difficulties with visual accommodation and blurring of vision. 
Hematologic monitoring is advised during prolonged therapy. Growth should be monitored during treatment with stimulants, and patients who are not growing or gaining height or weight as expected may need to have their treatment interrupted. The most common adverse reaction, greater than 5%, reported in children and adolescents was abdominal pain upper. The most common adverse reactions, greater than 10%, reported in adults were dry mouth, nausea, decreased appetite, headache, and insomnia. Concerta. Start here. Get there.